Welcome everybody to Isolation Studios. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're washing your hands, taking care of yourself, you're feeling good, you're staying inside, and you're helping to flatten this curve. Of course, by staying inside, you got lots of time to fill. With so many people with so much time to kill, I've been making these podcasts with three suggestions of three movies that maybe you haven't seen or maybe you haven't seen for a long time. Watch them back to back. That'll lead up the better part of a day. And there you go. One more day checked off the calendar until we can get back to normal life, going outside, touching our faces, doing all the stuff that people like to do. First up, Terrence Malick is probably the biggest name filmmaker with the lowest profile in Hollywood. I told Tree of Life star Jessica Chastain about a story I had heard about someone who played baseball with Malick for 10 years without ever realizing that he was that Terrence Malick. I asked her if he is really as withdrawn as his public persona would suggest. Terrence Malick uh, isn't withdrawn at all. He's not um, shy. I guess when you meet him... Uh, in his you know, personal life or even working on a set. He's incredibly shy when it comes to press and, uh, yeah, mostly just press. And I think that's because he's humble. Uh, he he has a great life where he can play softball <laughs> and um, he, he, he likes meeting people at eye level. He does, you know, there's this... Sometimes it happens, this crazy thing that happens in the business where when you start to get acknowledged for your work... Um, it's difficult then to connect with uh, people because they start to try to separate you from them and they can't relate to you. And uh, his humbleness and his reclusiveness to the press allows him to meet people at eye level and to always be connected with the world, which I think is a beautiful thing. Today we'll talk about his Tree of Life, a star-studded look at life, death, and the birth of the universe. He compresses the history of the world, mankind, and the lives of a Waco, Texas family into two hours and 20 minutes. This coming-of-age story, or more rightly, a coming-of-the-ages story, is impressionistic storytelling, non-linear, non-story-based, but not nonsensical. It's a deeply spiritual movie, from the Job quote that begins the story to the Amen chorus at the end. It asks the big questions. Why do awful things happen? Are we always in God's hands? Often in reverential, whispered tones. Style-wise, Malik constantly tilts the camera upwards, keeping an eye on the heavens. This is not light entertainment. In fact, some will think this is pretentious twaddle, while others will see a movie that replaces traditional storytelling with deep-seated feelings. I'm leaning ever so slightly towards the pretentious twaddle camp, certainly in the film's first hour, where Malik inserts a long sequence detailing the above-mentioned birth of the universe. Faces and lifelike shapes appear in the primordial goop that makes up much of this extended creation scene, and by the time the dinosaurs appear, it's hard to remember this is a movie starring Brad Pitt and Sean Penn. But as pretentious twaddle goes, it's really beautiful. If this movie was made in 1968, it would have been a head movie delighting stoners at midnight screenings. I asked Jessica Chastain what the script for this unusual movie looked like. Well, the script is beautiful. It is. It took me four hours to read it, not because, you know, of any anything except that it is just I wanted to savor every single word of it. It's not like a typical screenplay um, that I've read. It's not a lot of screenplays just kind of like 
bare facts. Let's just get cut to the chase. That's not this script. I hope someday it's published. It's so gorgeous. And um, I feel like the film that we made is absolutely represented in the script that I read. Um, yeah, it's when I knew the second I read the script that I was about to embark on a very important journey in my life, artistically and personally. In, in what way? Well, artistically in that I get to, you know, be in a Terrence Malick film and, you know, there's so many lessons in that working with Brad and Sean and, of course, Terrence Malick. Uh, but then also personally, having getting the opportunity to play this woman that is the embodiment of grace in the spiritual world, you know, when you explore what that is and try to cultivate that in yourself, you can't help but be changed by that. And I try to take this character with me always. She's a reminder um, to me on like how I want to live my life. And uh, to me, I see that as a great gift Terrence Malick's given me. The first 40 minutes gives way to a slightly less impressionistic midsection based mostly in the family home of Mr. and Mrs. O'Brien, that's Brad Pitt and Jessica Chastain, and their three kids. It's a feel, a hazy look at growing up. This is one seriously beautiful film. Malik has his characters talk about living in a state of grace, love everyone, every leaf, every ray of light, and it's not hard to imagine that that is an echo of his filmmaking ethos. He finds splendor in the things we don't see on screen very often anymore. A pure shot of fireflies flittering in the darkness, landscapes and nature unadulterated, left alone to speak for themselves. Critics use words like textural, nuanced to describe Tree of Life. I'll add a few more. Heartfelt, willfully obscure, and intriguing. I asked Chastain about watching the movie for the first time. I thought that this is the kind of film in which the making of it and later the watching of it were likely two very different experiences. Well, the first time I saw the film, um, I, it, I wasn't very objective because it was like watching a home video, you know? Um, it was like, oh, I remember when we played in the sprinklers. Oh, I remember Ty when Hunter did that. It was these, um, it was kind of like me connecting with the boys again when I first saw the film. Uh, and then when I saw it again at, at uh, Cam this year, gosh, every time I see it, it's I get something new and different. And usually um, it's talking to my friends and family that have seen it that um, awaken new ideas. Uh, uh, within it, but it's really exciting to be part of a film that creates discussion. I mean, I love films in the set that were made in the 70s and, you know, that were made um, more than just for entertainment. I like films that inspire discussion and make you look at your life and ask questions um, about how you're living your life and, you know, the questions, why are we here? What's the purpose of our existence? And is there such a thing as death? Or are you just born into something else? Uh, so that's kind of rare as an actress to be in a film that creates discussion that this, you know, people could be dis 
talking about this film for years. And people have been talking about this film for years. <laughs> That's the other thing. <laughs> and hopefully they'll be talking about it. I've always said The Tree of Life will be the film that when I'm doing off Broadway 30 years from now, people will come up to me and say, you were in the tree of life. Right. People, I, I believe, will be studying this in film schools and they'll be writing their thesis on this movie. And I will forever be able to say that I was involved in this picture. And that, to me, I don't know how you top that. I mean, that right there, full stop. <laughs> Next, we have a look at the Jim Jarmusch film Patterson. It's a week in the life of Patterson, the man and the place. Adam Driver is Patterson, a poetry-writing New Jersey bus driver from Patterson, New Jersey. He lives with his wife, Laura, a dreamer who wants to open up a cupcake shop and make them rich, or maybe she'll become a country singer. Along for the ride is their dog, Marvin. For Patterson, every day is pretty much the same as the one before it. He wakes up early and eats Cheerios before packing a lunch into the metal lunchbox that he takes when he heads to work. A William Carlos William, that's a famous New Jersey poet fan, he pens carefully worded free verse poems in an ever-present notebook. The only things that change in Patterson's life are the ever-shifting faces of his passengers and his wife Laura's career choices. When she isn't painting black and white geometric designs on every surface of their small home, she is dreaming about whatever it is that may come next for her. Patterson is a wonderfully leisurely movie. It's not in a hurry to get where it's going. Instead, it luxuriates in the mundane aspects of Patterson's life, punctuated by on-screen depictions of his poetry. And what could have been insufferable turns into a beautifully rendered portrait of people who find beauty in art in everyday life. There are small conflicts sprinkled throughout, a bus breaks down and lovers quarrel, but Patterson isn't about that. It's about gentle, loving performances from the cast and the beauty of overheard conversations and the day-to-day -day of regular life. I asked Adam Driver about Jarmusch's way of subverting the audience's idea of what the story could be in every scene. Here's what he said. Jim, it's very bold in a way because Jim trusted that the power of thought or is cinematic enough right. that uh, having a relationship that actually is really well functioning and has like, a, they both have each levels of respect and they've both structured their life and given each other space to, uh, you know, he, he structured his life so he can float in his poetry. He, he has a job that's very... Uh, not systematic, but very, very routine. And structured. Yeah, yeah. Which I can relate to where you, you know, obviously actors' eyes are very nomadic and you um, kind of crave uh, a normalcy or structure to allow you to kind of be more loose in your work maybe. And um, that that uh, being bold enough to make a movie around that idea of a character's main activity being listening, I think is really great. You know, I think it's actually a comment on how much he trusts his audience to be willing to uh, to get it and yeah. not, not play things, uh, dumb it down for people. And finally, let's have a look at the documentary, West of Memphis. It's about the gruesome murders of three children, the subsequent trial of teenagers, Jesse Muskelly Jr., Damian Eccles, and James Baldwin, the court case that found them guilty, and finally, the evidence that suggested otherwise. 
From the film's opening minutes, it becomes clear that the fates of the accused were predetermined. In the opposite of a fair and balanced journalistic moment, a television news person reporting on the final days of the 1994 trial says that the people of West Memphis, which is in Arkansas, not Tennessee, will rest easier when these suspects are found guilty. It's an effective illustration of the prevailing attitude of the time. Despite flimsy evidence, the three didn't stand a chance of acquittal because they were perceived as different and dangerous. They fit the profile. One prosecutor even says, you look inside Damien Eccles and there's not a soul in there. The murders and trial are a starting place for Amy Berg's documentary. The bulk of the 146-minute running time is comprised of the 17-year fight to prove the innocence of the West Memphis Three, a battle which attracted the attention and support of high-profile showbiz types like Johnny Depp, Eddie Vedder, and Lord of the Rings director and producer Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh. West of Memphis is compelling stuff. The evidence is laid out in a clear and interesting fashion using first-hand interviews, crime photos, including unforgettable and upsetting police photos of the three dead eight-year-olds, and information from private investigators paid for by the wealthy celebs who stood by the three, even though it felt, quote, like treading water for years without the shore getting closer. Compelling and frustrating though the story may be, sometimes real life gets in the way of a satisfactory conclusion. The outcome of the 17-year crusade to get a new trial is well known, so no spoilers here unless you haven't read a newspaper or seen the news in years. Instead of being granted a new trial, the three were offered an Alford plea, a little-used petition that sees them released from prison on the proviso that they plead guilty to the crime. It's a slippery way for the state to release the men, but erase any possibility of them suing for wrongful imprisonment. It's a letdown at the end of the film, but it's real life. The three are free, and according to the evidence presented in the film, they deserve to be, but the manner of their release is frustrating. Still, the film is a fascinating look at the soft underbelly of the justice system. I asked director Amy Berg about becoming involved in a project like this, one that took years to make and threatened to take over her life. Here's what she said. You're exactly right. When I get a call, like the call that I got from New Zealand, it was basically, I was, I had just come out of something pretty heavy and I wasn't sure if I could commit to it because I was like, you know, it was just daunting. And, and the evidence alone was daunting. The emotional content was daunting. But I just, it's, there's something about this case that is so intoxicating. And there's so much information that you just feel like you have to keep going. And so I told myself, I do this little reverse psychology thing, because I understand exactly how I'm going to tell the story. Oh, it'll only take a year, a year and a half. I told myself that. Not true. Well, that's everything for today. Thanks for listening. I know self-isolation is a drag. I know that constantly washing your hands and not touching your face and not having a normal life is a drag. But if we all do these things, we will get back to normal life or some kind of life sooner rather than later. We can get through this one movie at a time. I'm Richard Krauss. Thanks for listening. <laughs>